Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey, Sarah. Hello, Rebecca. How are you on this rainy day? I'm doing pretty good. We have an excellent story time today with Charles L. Horn Jr. As opposed to Charles Horn Sr., a.k.a. Charles of the Federal World, yes? (laughs) Yes. Charles Horn Jr. uh, gave an oral history to an Anoka Ramsey student in 1993, where he just talked all about his dad. And he was 66 at the time of the interview. And my question for the folks out there in podcast land would be, how do your perceptions of your parents change when you're 66, as opposed to if he'd recorded this interview when he was 46 or 26? I think you see them more as rounded humans. When you're, when you're younger, you can't really separate that they're more than just my parent and annoying. We might be going through that right now with my 20-year-old daughter. <laughs> Does she listen to this podcast? I don't think so. I'm clear. Okay. <laughs> I love how uh, Charles Jr. shares some fun things about his dad. I love the oral histories that share things that are he would never, ever be able to find out otherwise. Personal quirks. What's your favorite? uh, I loved him sharing the fact that his dad was not a good driver. He As described, in crash into the lamppost type bad driver? A little bit, I think. Uh, that he was, Charles was driving every day from Minneapolis where he lived. He didn't live in Anoka. And at one point, like he was carrying the payroll with him. And if he couldn't make it with the payroll, he had to wait till the next time he came. No. <laughs> Gems to listen for. Shall that, we get into it? That was it? very early on uh, in federal history, so that, that didn't last a very long time. But yes, here we go. Torn Jr., the date is January 22nd, 1993, and we're at the Norwest Center. Today we'll be talking about Charles Horn Sr. All right, um, my name is Charles L. Horn Jr., I am the oldest child of Charles L. Horn, the subject of this interview. Myself, I was born on May 12, 1927. I am a retired attorney, and I live in Bloomington, Minnesota. My father, Charles L. Horn, and the L stood for Lily. I'll spell that for the history. That's L-I-L-L-E-Y. I may want to comment on that little name. Was born in near Mount Vernon, Iowa, on March 5, 1888. He was born, so far as I know, in on a farm, and there is an unsubstantiated tradition that the farmhouse was, in fact, a sort of log cabin. Uh, When my father was just a small child, an infant, only a couple of years old, his parents moved to western Iowa. They moved to a small town in western Iowa called Cushing. 
How my father got to Minnesota is something of a mystery. He never quite explained it, other than saying that he had, after graduation, visited friends in Minnesota and liked the place and decided that he would go to college in Minnesota rather than to the University of Iowa or to what is now called Iowa State. His initial plan was that he was going to study forestry, and I believe that probably for a semester or so he was enrolled in the School of Forestry at the University of Minnesota, which was part of the School of Agriculture. However, apparently forestry was not to his liking, and uh, before that college, his first college year was over, uh, he entered the University of Minnesota Law School. My father graduated from law school in 1912. I believe that he was the second-ranking student in the class, which was quite a small class. He became president of a very small company in Minneapolis called the American Ball Company. Now, the ball refers to ball bearings. It manufactured steel ball bearings, and it was located uh, off East Lake Street. I remember that when I was a small boy, the site of the place was pointed out to me. I couldn't say exactly where it was at the present time, but I think it was somewhere near the near Cedar Avenue or 27th Avenue uh, uh, East. It was this operation that got him involved with federal cartridge. Now, as probably anybody that's going to hear this history knows, Federal Cartridge Corporation, as it was known when my father came into the picture, was actually a sort of a successor to another company which had been founded six or seven years before. It was called the Federal Cartridge and Machine Company. It occupied the same grounds, and the old main plant building, or what's left of it, was in fact the plant of the Federal Cartridge and Machine Company. Uh, they intended, some people I think named Sherman, I never knew anything about it except their name which I've read, uh, were behind this. Uh, they intended to make uh, shotgun shells, and I, maybe 22s, I don't know. Uh, but they never really got it off the ground. Uh, about the only thing they did right was sign a two-year contract with a man named John Hallard, who had worked for other ammunition companies in the East, and who was sort of a mechanical genius. John Hallard was the man they were going to have to try to run the plant. Uh, a little aside about John Hallard, because he was really the first employee of Federal Cartridge Company Corporation, uh, is that he was supposedly able to mentally see how the various machines, particularly the loaders and the trimmers and everything, would work. And on the basis of those pictures that he had in his mind, he would be able to draw plans for the manufacture and building of such machines. Uh, he was rather a truly remarkable character. Uh, anyhow, a Federal Cartridge and Machine Company, so far as I know, sold very, very little ammunition. And soon thereafter, uh, its com began, commencement uh, ceased operations. Uh, they, they started building the plant in 1916. 
Uh, apparently they got the plant completed in 1917. By 1918 or 19 it was all over. Now, I don't know exactly the background or the details of how my father got into Federal Cartridge Corporation. I do know that he became associated with a man named Todd Lewis. Todd Lewis and my father uh, formed the Federal Cartridge Corporation, an entirely different organization than the Federal Cartridge and Machine Company, and bought the assets such as they were. They consisted of part of the grounds of the present plant, the old building, and I suspect a rather battered clock house, some machinery, a certain amount of raw materials, and a certain amount of uh, semi-finished uh, product. They had a lot of very bad primers, my father used to say. The new Federal Cartridge Corporation, so far as I know, uh, started in the winter of early winter of 1922. There is an article in a 1943 Monarch in which my father uh, gave some recollections of his first day out in Anoka uh, as president of Federal Cartridge Corporation, at which time uh, it consisted of himself and John Haller and a coal stove in what was a plant to try to keep people warm, he, namely he and John. From there, uh, the Federal Cartridge Corporation started up. Now, it's rather interesting that although Federal Cartridge was in Anoka, my father never had offices at Federal Cartridge in Anoka. As a matter of fact, I don't think he ever spent the night in Anoka unless he was out there looking at the plant that got snowballed. Um, I guess he wasn't anymore a small-town boy. And as a matter of fact, Anoka was a rather remote place at that time. It was 20 miles from Minneapolis. The roads weren't that good. And if you were going to uh, operate the sales division efficiently, you almost had to be in the city of Minneapolis. So he always had his office in Minneapolis where the sales department remained until 1987 and where the uh, major accounting department remained and where some other facilities were in. This later was situated in the Fauché Tower office, and uh, the tower office was, uh, was, where, was where he always had his, his own personal office. My father went out to Anoka uh, quite regularly uh, during uh, the, uh, the week. He would probably go out in the early days a couple of times a week. He drove in a red Buick Roadster, 1921 Buick Roadster, which is still in existence, so far as I know, out at Federal Hoffman. Uh, I can remember as a very small boy driving in it, and when I saw it again later in my, as I, after I had grown, it was an amazing machine. Uh, the, the metal that was used on cars in those days was almost uh, the same type you one would think as on armored cars and tanks. Uh, it was enormously high off the ground. Uh, the wood in the steering wheel was better than the wood many people have in the furniture in their living room, and uh, by and large it was an imposing looking creation. Uh, my father was never a very good automobile driver. In fact, a ride with my father in the automobile was not the kind of uh, experience that I particularly enjoyed, although he never had a serious accident. 
but going to and from Anoka on the dirt sand roads that they had in those days, I guess he got into the ditch quite frequently. His presence out, uh, at the end of the every two week or two weeks in the afternoon was very much uh, looked for because uh, he would bring out the payroll from Minneapolis. And if he didn't show up, it meant that it had not been a bad two weeks and you're going to have to wait uh, a while before you get your money. Now, there's one thing I should tell you about my father before I go further, because it explains an awful lot, of the, a lot about him. I think some of the people that knew him realized that he had virtually no hearing in one ear. I'll be perfectly honest and tell you that although he lived till I was 51, I was never sure which was his bad ear. This obviously probably had some effect on how he did things and how he worked and everything else. It was because of this hearing defect, of course, that he was never in any military service. Now, I might just say a little bit. I have not mentioned my father's appearance very much. Um, he was about 5 feet 10 or 5 feet 11. As a young man, he was very, very thin. He was a little bit heavier as he grew older. I would say that in his 40s or 50s, he weighed probably about 180 pounds or so. Uh, he had blue eyes. Uh, one thing about him was very interesting. I never saw my father without a mustache. Apparently he had grown a mustache uh, 1918 or 1920, and he wore it the rest of his life. And so I never did see him without a mustache. Later on, some of his friends, uh, who were also in the other uh, companies, the ammunition companies, so one of them as a joke, gave him some mustache wax, and he used it continued to use mustache wax and had a wax mustache until the time of his death. He was a very dapper dresser. Uh, for years, he always wore a carnation. He had a carnation, a uh, fresh one on, every day. And very curious that during the 1930s, and this was probably because of something else I'll tell you about later in a few minutes, uh, he always wears spats. He was one of the last men I ever knew that wore spats. But he was a very good dresser. Uh, later on, he began to have, he actually had all his clothing uh, suits made for him by a uh, German uh, tailor named Otto Will. Stop for just a second now. What do you want to do? Now, uh, one thing, I'm going to talk about something. I don't know how much, how well people knew about this. Uh, I suspect now that it's fairly common knowledge. Uh, but uh, for a long, many, many years, it was not. In 1929, my father and Todd Lewis sold the Federal Cartridge Corporation to a man named Franklin W. Olick, who was also in the ammunition business. I never even knew about this until I was eight years old in 1935, and then only found out about it by accident. Uh, my father remained as the president of Federal Cartridge Corporation, and virtually ran the whole show uh, without any particular interference, so far as I know, from F.W. Owen. Uh, when I was boy, there were maybe about 200 or so people, 200 or 300 people that worked for Federal Cartridge. Most, of course, out in Anoka. And I visited Anoka and the Federal plant quite often later on. Uh, insurance stuff and everything of that kind made it impossible for me to visit the plant while it was in operation. 
But many Sunday afternoon, we all went out when the plant was closed down. We all went out to uh, an open. And I, they were, I guess sometimes we raided the icebox at the, uh, the cafeteria, the commissary, which was built in 1930, somewhat to the uh, unhappiness of the people that uh, had to open up on, on, on Monday. When World War II started, of course, uh, things began to change and change very rapidly. Now, I had, as a boy, always been conscious of, and we talked about, what would happen if there were a war? And what would something like federal cartridge do? I vaguely knew that they were in government plans or orders or instructions that they would make uh, trench mortar uh, primers, air, aircraft gun primers, or things of that kind. Uh, that only partially came true. However, there, in connection with the defense program, which began in 1940 and was going on into 1941, there were plans for the construction of a number of government-owned plants to make small arms ammunition. Now, by small arms, I mean ammunition of 30 and 50 caliber size. I suppose also 45s, but that wasn't such a big thing. Uh, this was the common... Uh, caliber for army rifles, like machine guns. Uh, the 50 calibers were used largely uh, air, aircraft machine guns and on some heavy machine guns the army, is, army used. Now, according to my father, knowing, knowing about this, he sort of went to Washington, D.C. on his own hook and got an appointment with the people in the Ordnance Department of the Army and told them, he said, he understood that they were thinking of building such a facility in the Twin Cities area. And that, as a matter of fact, if they were going to do so, they ought to look at federal cartridge because we were the, it was the only uh, company in the whole area that knew anything about making ammunition. The result was a contract with Federal Cartridge Corporation to build and to operate for the United States uh, Army, the Ordnance Department, a very large small arms manufacturing facility. It was then called Twin Cities Ordnance Plant, TCOP. That facility, of course, still exists, not operating now, and it's called the Twin Cities Arsenal. It was totally built from scratch between late August and the early summer of uh, late August 1941 and the early summer of 1942. All of the people were hired, all of the machines were brought in, the whole thing was put together that quickly and that rapidly. It was a very, very interesting experience, even if I only saw it from the outside. Uh, everybody virtually had to be hired once. There were some federal cartridge people that were transferred from Anoka to uh, Twin Cities Ordnance Plant in some of the key positions. My father and Alfred Schmaltz literally went through dozens of hundreds of applications in our home living room after supper, four or five days a week, selecting out the people who would be the first 1,000 or so employees because they were 
some of the key people. They would be the machine adjusters, the foreman, and a lot of these people, a lot of the key people. And I don't know if any of those people who are still around realize it, came in in the early days, that they were literally hand-picked. Absolutely hand-picked. Uh, the plant got into operation in the, I think in August, that is producing ammunition in August of 1942. At its peak operation, there were 26,000 employees. It was the largest war plant in the state of Minnesota. And I suspect at that time was practically the largest employer in the state of Minnesota. It was the first plant that went out and hired Negroes. That hadn't been done before. As a matter of fact, one of the first employees of the Twin Cities Ordnance Plant, before there was a planting, when they were just the fenced-in grounds, was a guard who was uh, an African-American who had been hired in. There he was out in uniform. I saw him, you know, patrolling. He was a lot of others patrolling around the perimeter, which was several square miles. Uh, in that respect, it made a great deal. It made quite a record. Uh, at one time, one-fifth of the Negro population of the state was supposedly working at Twin Cities Ordnance Plant. Uh, one of the highlights was the visit of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt to the plant in September 1942 when he was making a tour of defense plants, a secret tour of defense plants uh, from uh, Washington. Uh, may stray aside a little bit, one of the reasons it was said that he made the tour this was that he and Eleanor had a hell of a big row, and he decided to get out, get away for a while. But of course, that's only might, might, or might or might not be true. Uh, I, matter of fact, knew about this, found out about this here, that President Roosevelt was coming. Uh, the morning of the day he came there, my father told me, but he thought I was not telling anybody else, and I did not. Uh, we discussed the matter at the Sunday dinner following. It was on a Saturday that Roosevelt was here. We discussed it. Uh, the main interesting thing was we all, my father and, and Alice Robertson, who was at dinner with us also, agreed that, right enough, Franklin D. Roosevelt looked just exactly like Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, Sometimes people don't look like their pictures. Uh, of course, this was not in the newspapers in Minneapolis, but of course there were a lot of people, all the people who had been on the night shift saw him. Some were quite surprised. There's a story that is, he, he drove down the aisle. Roosevelt, of course, was almost totally good. He drove down the aisles in this open car that was The aisles of the plant were white. And somebody looked up from their work and said, God Almighty, it's President Roosevelt. It was really astounding. I've told about that story in other books, but anyhow. Uh, I remember that the story was sort of a lot of underground rumor because people had seen him and were told him, telling their friends. And one, one teacher of my school came to me and said, Charles, is it true that Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, visited uh, the Twin Cities Ordnance Plant a couple of weeks ago? And I looked him straight in the eye and said, I don't know anything about I've never heard anything about that. No, it's not a nice day. It'll be able to lie to your teacher for good patriotic motives. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are an awful lot of people that remember him. I still 
meet people, older people, who tell me about having worked at the Twin Cities Ordnance Plant in World War II. And the interesting thing is that they always seem to feel that uh, they were working personally for my father, not for a company, but personally for my father. Well, uh, I think maybe, uh, Jason, I've got about as, given you about as much as I can, unless you can think of some other questions. No, well, I think we've covered just about everything. All right, well, it's been interesting to talk to you, and I hope this project works out well. And, I hope so, too. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> We're still running the machine. You know, I better turn it up. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, everyone. I'm Haley Coble, a librarian at the Northtown Library in Anoka County, here with a reading list for those of you interested in manufacturing and industry in America during the buildup to World War II. In addition, if you, like Charles Horn, are a facial hair aficionado, there are some books in here for you as well. First of all, we have Freedom's Forge, How American Business Produced Victory in World War II by Arthur Herman. General Motors magnate William Big Bill Knudsen and shipbuilder Henry S. Kaiser were largely responsible for rallying the arsenal of democracy that helped the Allies achieve victory in World War II. These men converted auto factories to airplane construction facilities and assembly lines to ammunition's creation lines, resulting in a boom of manufacturing that helped outfit the U.S. military for war. Next up, we have the Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm in America at War by A.J. Bame. Manufacturing was booming all across America leading up to World War II, but Bame's book takes a closer look at the Ford Motor Company in Detroit in particular. Drawing on research from the Ford archives, the National Archives, and the FDR Library, this book shows how Ford became a huge manufacturer of planes through their assembly lines. Bringing back things Back to home to Minnesota, we have Minnesota Goes to War, The Home Front During World War II by Dave Kenny. In Dave Kenny's book, we turn to focusing on Minnesota in particular and its role in the war effort. The book provides photographs, letters, interviews with veterans and families, and tons of detail about uniquely Minnesotan war experiences, like the rival scrap drives between Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Human Centrifuge Project at the Mayo Clinic, and much more. And last but not least, for those of you who are interested in facial grooming, we have Of Beards and Men, The Revealing History of Facial Hair by Christopher Oldstone Moore. Mustaches, beards, goatees, mutton chops, facial hair fads come and go, and Oldstone Moore's chronicle of how and why that is is fascinating. The classic Western ideal may be clean shaven, but facial hair always seems to come back around, inspired by shifting concepts of masculinity. Learn more about this interesting subject here, and maybe consider growing out your own mustache. Thank you again for joining us for the Library Minute. Remember to ask a librarian for recommendations concerning your mid-20th century manufacturing and facial grooming needs, or check out the call numbers listed for more information. See you next time. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. That was so interesting. I love hearing about 
people from that perspective where you get to hear their quirks and those ungoogleable situations. I always knew about Charles Horn. I took swimming lessons at Charles Horn pool, but listening to his son talk about him and the ear that he couldn't hear out of and his mustache, it makes him so much more of a real person. Those are the details that when we have people come in for research and they say, tell me about grandma. And we hand them a stack of census records and newspaper articles. That's when I wish that we had the family memories that talked about that funky detail of what actually made them a person. The way that we make our mark on records in this world can often be just really dry. I mean, the census record is an amazing resource, but I mean, it tells us where they were in a very specific part of their life and nothing about who they are as a person. It's all statistics. Fun statistics. I still love them. Well, of course. We're, we're geeky that way. <laughs> the other really neat thing about Charles Jr. is that he was born in 1927. So he literally grew up with Federal as a company. What a weird perspective that now it's turning 100. And you get to come to our exhibit and see more about it next year. I really appreciated uh, Junior telling us how tall his father was because we are planning a Charles Horn cutout that you can take your very own picture with. Complete with mustache. And carnation. Oh, yes. We could give away carnations. Oh, that would be a good idea. Writing it down. (laughs) (laughs) So this is your call to be like Charles Jr. and to tell your memories about who these people are in your life so that 50 years from now we can have a little podcast and listen in and learn about who you are. Ooh, voyeurism. (laughs) It's all history is. (laughs) Thanks, you guys, for listening along. We'll see you next time. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.